You're tuned to the Global Research News Hour in the Summer. My name is Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge this program was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. We recognize the need to address injustices of colonialism and genocide committed against the indigenous people of this land and are working to address the imbalance with settlers in a respectful way. On this week's program, we focus on a presentation by Marianne Cloak to the National Citizens' Inquiry, Canada's response to COVID-19. Marianne Cloak has been a seasoned journalist working for CBC Winnipeg in radio and television for more than three decades. But in 2021, she decided to quit following what she saw as the total loss of journalistic principles during the COVID situation. Marianne Cloak was basically a whistleblower and so we are delighted to bring this person and her views to the attention of our listeners and let them decide for themselves whether or not the CBC and other media generally have been communicating a story a little too much like propaganda for the state and big pharmaceutical corporations as opposed to getting at the truth. This broadcast features Sean Buckley, the lawyer and NCI lead counsel in conversation with Ms. Cloak. The NCI is a citizen's inquiry not supported by the Government of Canada, which brought hundreds of witnesses and experts across the country and from beyond the country to testify on flaws, mistakes, and injustices committed against many individuals. It traveled to eight different cities and lasted from March 16th of this year to May 19th. As a point of full disclosure, I myself testified at the inquiry along with Professor Michelle Chosodovsky, who pays for the series on this radio station. This program is broadcast with the permission of the NCI. So here is Marianne Kloak speaking of her experience of reporting on COVID on the Global Research News Hour in the summer. It was early 2021. And I was disturbed and alarmed about the um, language that was being used in some of our editorial meetings. All of a sudden, the term anti-vaxxer came up. And I said, whoa, whoa, let's stop right there. What is an anti-vaxxer? Who is an anti-vaxxer? What do they believe? Because are you saying it's someone who's against all vaccines? Because the people I'm speaking to who are vaccine-hesitant have had all their, all their other shots, but they have problems with this particular one. I also brought up those who couldn't get it for health reasons because of allergies. And what about people who just needed more time and information to make a decision? And yet, we were lumping them all in the same pot as being an anti-vaxxer. I said, using this term is dangerous, it's discriminatory, and why are we talking about these people with such hostility and such contempt? So Marianne, can I just stop you there? Because that's, that's a term that's become very sensitive at this hearing, and I'll explain that in a second. So when the term comes up in the newsroom, 
um, it, it's being used in a really negative term, like it, it, it's meant to be pejorative? Almost laughing, ridiculing. It's like these people aren't educated. That was, that was the kind of term that was being used, and that was what was inferred. And, and I'll tell you why I, I, you know, I, just, I stopped you with that. So we've had, and it, I think it was the Saskatoon hearings where I started to notice it. So um, we'd have witnesses, like literally vaccine injury witnesses, talking about how you know, their lives were literally destroyed by this particular vaccine. And, but then they would add during their testimony, just literally out of context, but I'm not an anti-vaxxer. And then we had a, um, a lady that really was part of one of the biggest freedom groups in, in Saskatoon, you know, that arose because of the mandates and things like that. And she made a point, but we're not an anti-vaxxer group. And <clears throat> so that told me, because I, my understanding, and it's, it's based on a lot of the evidence that was here, but also, you know, prior to me coming here, is that these terms are created basically to ridicule and basically to close our minds, right? So because no one wants to be labeled as an anti-vaxxer, so if somebody is labeled as an anti-vaxxer, you'll close your mind to them, right? So it's just interesting. I'm sorry to stop you, but it's interesting to hear because you basically used, you know, laughter as a description that these people would be laughed at within a a newsroom. And I, I think that was the prevailing consensus in the newsroom, that if you were educated and if you were intelligent, you got the shot. To question it meant you weren't intelligent, which really flies in the face of critical thinking, and it's opposite of journalistic practice. In June of 2021, the Manitoba government had carried out its own survey on vaccine hesitancy. And we'll just pull up your slide for a second. There we go. Got it? Okay. So... In the next slide, it looks, you see the reasons for vaccine hesitancy, why you're not in a rush to get it, not sure if you'll, you will get it, or you're not going to get it at all. Look at the top three. It found 25% were concerned about long-term effects, 18% were concerned about side effects and reactions, and 15% said the vaccine was experimental and unproven. So more than half, that's 58%, almost 60% had concerns about safety and that it was experimental. Now notice where religion comes in. It comes in at 4%. So more than half of the people were listening to their gut and they weren't convinced by the mantra of safe and effective. But instead of critically thinking, doing news gathering and real journalism on safety concerns, scrutinizing the Pfizer data and asking some of the hard questions people were asking me, like, why is the CBC the arm of public health? We chose to focus on that 4%, those who were hesitant for religious reasons. So our mission at the CBC now was to educate these people, or for that matter, educate anyone who was vaccine hesitant and eliminated, because surely if they were educated, they would have changed their mind. This to me was arrogant, it was condescending, and we were telling people what to think because we didn't trust them to think for themselves. Our tone implied they were a danger to society if their thinking didn't fall in line with the narrative. And to me, this was mind-boggling because I understood our mandate of the CBC was to elevate the voice of Canadians to tell stories on a 
a local, a regional, and a national level, reflecting Canadians to Canadians to promote understanding and unity. And instead, we were fanning the flames of fear, of division, of segregation, and hatred against a particular group, the unvaccinated. So the stereotype we were creating emerged early on. The person who was unvaccinated was uneducated. They were likely a person of faith. They were denying that COVID was real. They probably lived in a rural community and they were branded a danger to public safety. So I, I'm just gonna stop you. So these are themes that the CBC in their newsroom came up to actually use to basically denigrate and create a group called the anti-vaxxers and denigrate them. So we actually have our, our state-funded news organization coming up with themes to create, basically create a separate group and to make them you know, look uneducated and basically like Luddites. That, that was the image that was portrayed. And, and, and this was a deliberate decision. It was a deliberate decision because look at the government survey. It showed that almost 60% of people were concerned about safety, and yet we were focusing on religion. And I'll give you a couple examples well, of the and, stories. And if I can just interact a little bit, because sure. it would seem to me the story is, is here's what people's concerns are, well, and let's go talk to those people. Right? That would be and, the common then, thinking, and wouldn't it? And see what flows from that as the story develops. Okay. That would be the common thinking. So here... This is a story we ran in May of 2021. Deathbed denials in southern Manitoba hospital patients, the doctor says. So it was a fact that pockets of southern health in Manitoba did have the lowest uptake of the vaccine. But I challenge this stereotype. I'm saying, you know, I, I know doctors, I know educated people, I know people in the trades, I know people working in garment factories, social workers, people all over the province that are vaccine hesitant. They do not fit this stereotype. But many of them by now were too afraid to be interviewed because they knew it wasn't safe. They knew what would happen to them, that they would be labeled, stigmatized, and they would likely lose their job. Here was another story we did in um, targeting people in faith communities that we ran a few months later, and that was in September of 2021. Manitoba health officials were targeting the low vaccination rate in the southern part of the province. I thought the best way to get through to these people is to get the community leaders and the religious leaders on board, and then we can convince people to get the shot. The story says there's no legitimate reason for religious exemptions to get the shot across several major belief systems, the leaders say. That's not what I was hearing from people. People were applying for exemptions and on their deeply held spiritual beliefs and their applications were consistently being rejected and they were losing their jobs because of it. And these were gut-wrenching stories of people who were calling me and saying, you know, I'm being escorted out of my workplace right now. I can't believe this is happening. I'm, I'm being discriminated against because of my faith. And they said, where's the right to religion, freedom of, freedom of religion, and where's the right to bodily autonomy? And where was the CBC, and why weren't we telling their stories? I mean, there was one man that uh, I'd spoken with. He'd been with a company for 25 years, and he was in a management position, and he was working from home, and he applied for an exemption that was rejected. He, he lost his job and he was, because he wouldn't get the shot, and he was continuing to work from home. It was ludicrous. It was absolutely ludicrous, and we, we didn't do these stories. 
So this was all sort of coming to a head, and on June 3rd, uh, 2021, I called for a meeting with the managing editor of CBC Manitoba, the executive producer, and I asked that a witness be present at all of the meetings to hear my concerns about our editorial direction. Now, that witness was a person who was recently hired as the executive producer of diversity and inclusiveness. So in that meeting, I raised a number of issues. I said, why weren't we investigating the safety of the vaccines when that's what came up at 60% in a government survey? Why were we creating a dangerous stereotype of who we thought a vaccine-hesitant person was? And why were we creating a hate culture against them and demonizing these people as a threat to public safety? Why were we endorsing and promoting an experimental drug that we didn't know much about other than what the government and the manufacturer were telling us? And I'm going to give you an example of how that happened. Going back to the journalistic standards about how we're supposed to be impartial, well, we had reporters uh, posting on their CBC Facebook page at the local and national level with a sticker on their arm and their hand up in the air saying, I'm part of Team Pfizer and Team Moderna. And... Uh, you know, with their hand up. And I said, how is that being impartial and how is that being objective? And why were we getting behind Pfizer, which paid out huge criminal settlements? And would these images convince people who were not sure to get the shot? I said, clearly this is a journalistic breach. When I flagged this to management, they didn't have an issue with it. They didn't think it was a problem. I also brought so, up to so them... Let me just stop. The management yes. didn't view those issues as a problem? No. They said if they want to do that, that's their choice. You mean if who wants to do it? If, if a reporter wants to post on Facebook, they've gotten the shot and they've got a sticker and they're part of Team Pfizer or Moderna, they didn't have an issue with that. Okay. I also brought up at that meeting what happened with thalidomide. That's a drug that was endorsed in the early 1960s for pregnant women who were nauseated, a drug that caused severe birth defects, and that we shouldn't be getting on this bandwagon. We should be very cautious because this was a brand new vaccine that had just become available. Now I'm going to give you a specific example of a story that I was shut down on. So June 2021 was the time when Israel was starting to see some links between uh, the Pfizer vaccine and heart inflammation. And I was getting calls from parents who were really distressed and just saying uh, there's the potential risk of heart inflammation in young people. I don't know if I should vaccinate my child. I don't know what to do. How safe is this vaccine? Uh, they were in angst about they wanted more information. And at that time, the Center for Disease Control and the FDA had put a warning on their uh, fact sheet about rare cases of myocarditis. And uh, some parents in Manitoba thought, you know, Manitoba should be doing the same for their fact sheet on Pfizer because that was the only one that was authorized in Canada for those 12 and older. They had sent letters to the province, the health minister, uh, public health officials, and they shared all these documents with me. So I, I pitched this story on the June 3rd meeting, and I was, I was given the go-ahead, and I interviewed several parents. And I approached this story like I would approach any other story. Is this true? The government and the manufacturer are saying it's safe and effective, and yet we've got parents worried about some evidence that's emerging that there could be some health concerns. So 
I set out to news gather, investigate, do the research, and find the answers to the questions people were asking. And for me, this story was reflective of, of that 60% where people were saying, this is what we're concerned about. So I thought, great, we're going to do a story that that public has a right to know. And these were some of the things that parents said to me on the record. They said, you know, giving youth a drug that's still in the trial phase is, is a terrible idea. It's dangerous. Um, they wanted to know who would be responsible if their child had an adverse reaction. Most troubling in their opinion was that some of these children didn't need to have their parents' consent to get the shot. Why was the state taking control of their children? They were asking me this. This is all credible and, and legitimate questions. They were fed up with their kids being threatened and bullied in and out of school for, for not being vaccinated. I'll tell you one story. There was a rural community and uh, this mother phoned me and there were two families. One family was vaccinated, one wasn't. And the daughters were best friends. And one of the daughters said, well, you know, if you want to get the shot, you can come over to my house on the weekend and my mom will take you and your mother never has to know. So that was the end of that friendship. That was the end of that. And it divided the whole community. Um, and these people were questioning, they were asking me, they were saying, well, if this vaccine is safe, then why does someone who's vaccinated have to be afraid of someone who's unvaccinated? Very logical questions. And they were angry with the CBC. They expressed that to me. They said, why was the CBC and the media cheerleading the government's message that the vaccine was safe and effective because they weren't convinced by it. So that's basically what they said to me on the record. And most of them um, had referenced and voiced their support for a body of scientific research that was put forward by the Canadian COVID Care Alliance, specifically by Byron Bridal, a world-class immunologist from the University of Guelph. And the Alliance had been raising flags about the safety of the vaccine based on scientific studies. They'd even filed a petition with the federal government, and they were calling the feds to suspend the use of the vaccines in children, in youth, in adults, in uh, women of childbearing age, until there would be long-term and short-term safety trials that were completed, and this would be published in peer-reviewed journals. Many of the parents I spoke with had signed this petition. Certainly this was newsworthy and something the public had a right to know. I mean, these were Canadians that were voicing a different or dissenting voice, and up until now, all we were airing and publishing were experts aligned with the government's view. This is a story I thought that would bring some fairness and balance to our one-sided coverage, and it would, it would punch a hole in the narrative. I contacted the Alliance, and I uh, spoke with a, a scientist by the name of Stephen Pellick, He's a highly reputable scientist. He's a professor of neurology in the Department of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. He had been doing COVID research in his lab for two and a half years. He also published more than 200 scientific papers over the course of his career. He, he praised the parents I interviewed, and he said, you know, they're wise. They're wise to question this narrative because he had serious concerns with vaccinating children with this, with this new vaccine. He shared with me the Pfizer data that showed with children there's the least amount of data from testing on whether there's a long-term or short-term side effect. So according to the document I was looking at from Pfizer, it was just over 1,130 
adolescents between 12 and 15 in the U.S. were vaccinated in phase three trials. And in his opinion, that was problematic. He said the tests were done on a very small number of children and the test wasn't powered enough. So what that meant is there wasn't enough participants to determine if, let's say, there was a reaction of one in 5,000. That wouldn't have been picked up by Pfizer. So I had Pelican camera. I had these parents all lined up. And I told you what my workflow was like prior to COVID. But it changed with this story. Um, when it came to this story, I, I never had more hands in the vetting of this story. While it was cleared by the Manitoba managing exec and the um, director, a local web writer flagged it. And she said, you know, maybe we should get uh, a response from Pfizer. I says, no, I think we've heard more than enough from Pfizer. Then she said, uh, you know, I don't think the vaccine is still in the trial phase. And I produced a document saying it is until 2023. But she sent out an internal email to several people in the newsroom, and she, she decided that my story should be forwarded to the Toronto Health Unit. Now, this is a special unit within the CBC, and she wanted them to do a final vet of my story. So now the CBC Toronto Health Unit was in charge of my story. It was the end of June, and I was, I was really getting anxious over how long this was taking because, as I mentioned before, I was used to turning stories around in a day or two, and, but to me, it was critical timing because the rollout was ramping up for the vaccination of young people in Manitoba. It was in full swing. Finally, five weeks later on July 8th. Five weeks? Five weeks. Remember, I could turn around stories in two or three days. This was five weeks. So I think it was being, they were sitting on the story. Maybe they were just hoping that I would go away and not persist in doing this story. But five weeks after July 8th, I uh, pitched the story I was called into a meeting while well, this was on Zoom because we were all working at home from home by then, and uh, that they, they had a verdict from Toronto. And, you know, I should mention to you that over three decades at the CBC, I'd say 30 to 35% of the stories I did were health stories. Never had I had a story that had to go to the Toronto Health Unit, and never was a story given this level of scrutiny. So I, I, just, I just want to emphasize this, because you had told us earlier that, you know, basically things changed at COVID. So what you're saying is, is for your 35 years as a journalist, like 35 to 40 percent of your stories were health stories. So it was, you knew what you could run, uh, what it took to run a health story, and that never before had it been sent to you know, this Toronto Health Unit, or no story in your, your career had ever been put under this much scrutiny? Never. Like I had mentioned, it was one producer, and the story was put through and it was published. And all of a sudden now, there were all these hands in the story. And I, I, what I want to mention to you, which is key to know here, is that before I tell you what happened, that none of the facts, none of the data, none of the research, nothing I put forward in that story in terms of uh, any of the information was was contested. It was rock-solid journalism, and I knew that I could put my name to that and defend every word I had written. They raised two concerns They were raised, that they uh, was an issue for them. Did I know that the Alliance promoted ivermectin? 
And did I know that some of the members of the alliance chose to be anonymous? Those were their two concerns. So my thought was, okay, now the story is being blocked further up the chain. I did know they supported ivermectin, but that was not the focus of the piece. And I had been sending for weeks links to management from medical journals about the success of ivermectin in treating COVID. I got no response. I said we should be having a debate about ivermectin on air and hear from experts who support its use. But that was not the focus of this piece. As for members being anonymous, I, I was confused by that because I thought, I interviewed Stephen Pellick. He went full face on camera with his credentials, so there was no anonymity there. And I could only guess that maybe some were choosing to be anonymous because they wanted to be able to continue uh, to practice without fear of being disciplined anyway. But what came next left me just speechless. I, I was just astonished. They said, well, there's a story to be told about the parents' concerns. The Canadian COVID care alliance was problematic. I should drop them out of the story, keep the parents' concerns in, but interview two experts that CBC Toronto was recommending. And of course, I did my research. Well, who are these people? Well, one of them was a pediatric immunologist who told me both of her kids were vaccinated she had worked with the federal government. She chaired a national committee overseeing the approval process of COVID-19 vaccines in Canada. I was being told to drop Pellick out of the story who was raising flags about safety concerns and put this woman in. I was just stunned. I was shocked. I could not believe that they were asking me to do this. I said, this is unethical. This is immoral. You're violating all our principles of fairness and balance and accuracy and being impartial and acting with integrity. And I says, what you're asking me to do is dishonest and it's manipulative. The parents I had on tape, I'd interviewed, they were backing the science of bridal. And to include them in the story but leave the alliance out, to me, defied logic. It didn't make any sense. We were effectively censoring people in the scientific community with impeccable credentials because they just didn't fall in line with the narrative. I said to the managing editor, I'm standing down. I'm walking away from this story. I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do. I've invested too much in this. I'm not going to sell these people out. And why should I have to include two doctors that Toronto has picked out? And then I think, you know, like, what if, what if this story had made it through and it went national? Wouldn't that have changed the narrative across the country? If parents had been armed with this information, would we have seen fewer vaccine injuries? Can, can I just stop you? Because another thing just kind of occurred to me when you were sharing that story, and you mentioned how they were actually critical of the, the CCCA, um, and I'm thinking, well, just wait, so just so people that don't know the term, so that stands for the Canadian COVID Care, Care Alliance. Alliance. And my understanding is, is, I mean, if it's not hundreds, it's thousands of scientists and doctors. Like, we're talking very credentialed people that have formed an organization to basically look into COVID issues objectively and to provide fair and balanced information. And, you know, if that 
leads them in a direction that goes against the government narrative. But isn't, isn't the fact that that group formed and exists itself a story that should be covered? Like, let alone cutting them out of a story, I, I was just thinking that in itself is somewhat fantastic and likely would be a story. And they formed specifically because of COVID and to give an alternative perspective. And I had pitched, let's do a story on them, but it was like, they, didn't, they weren't interested in it. They weren't interested in hearing what these people have to say because they figured they supported ivermectin. So they didn't want to do any of those stories. And, and just to give perspective, because I, I know when we had a conversation, and likely you're, you'll get to it, that, you know, you, like a reporter will go to a demonstration on an issue where there's like 12 people and report a story, but like when tens of thousands of people don't, you know, are show up for a demonstration, it might not be covered if it's, it's going against the government narrative now. So just kind of along those veins, like just even the size of the CCCA itself is quite... The numbers. Yeah, and quite the, something. The fact that they had filed this, this uh, national petition was to me was huge. They were saying, no, we need to stop. We need to pause. We need more information before we roll this out across the country for young people. And, and that story was shut down. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced on campus radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, with speaker, former CBC journalist Marianne Kloak, in conversation with National Citizens Inquiry lead counsel Sean Buckley on her departure from the CBC. Here's more of that conversation. And that was the death of journalism for me. July 8th, 2021. Instead, we were clearly pushing propaganda. So I had to call back everyone, and I thought, how am I going to handle this? So I apologized, and I told them the truth. And it was shameful, and it was humiliating, because these people had put themselves on the line to tell me their story. And I said, this is why I can't do it. This is why I won't do it. And um, it wouldn't see the light of day. And I said, I'm sorry that I have failed you and I've let you down. I didn't go to work the next day because I thought, I have to strategize. How, how am I going to deal with this? Do I quit right now? Um, do I stay and try to push stories through even harder? So the following day, I asked for uh, a conference call with the managing editor, the exec, and the witness. And, and I said, here's the deal. I says you know that story was solid journalism. I'm asking you to publish it. You have that power. And I said the timing was key as the province was ramping up the vaccinations of young people. It was urgent that this critical information get out there. And I said, I'm asking you to do this despite what Toronto has said. And if they wouldn't, I could no longer continue to work in this environment. They didn't publish it. It was also at that time I decided I, I had to start reaching out to other journalists because I felt like I was just losing my mind. Surely other people were seeing what I was seeing. And I did reach out. I, I reached out locally to a competing network. I also talked to someone south of the border. Um, through internal email at CBC, I sent out notes saying, this is what I'm seeing. What are you seeing? 
And I didn't hear back from anybody, so I thought, you know, I'm going to call the CBC Union. I called the CBC Union, and they said, oh, yeah, we're getting all kinds of calls about people concerned about our bias reporting. And I said, well, where are they? Put me in touch with them. And she said, oh, no, they're not. It's staying with the union. They're not going to go past the union. I says, what does that mean? And she says, well, they're not prepared to do what you're doing. They're not prepared to go all up the ladder and call, you know, power to account. So then I reached out to somebody, um, and I guess, you know, I understand that because I, I was sort of at the end of my career, but a lot of the journalists that, uh, that were calling the union were mid, midway in their career, and they were afraid of losing their jobs. I contacted a senior reporter from a competing network, and I said to her, what are you seeing? Like our, she says, oh, I'm seeing the same thing. You know, why has the media become the mouthpiece of, of public health? Then I managed to contact a reporter who worked for the New York Times who told me what was happening to me was exactly what was happening to him. His stories were being shut down. He was being blocked. As he saw it, we had, we had two options. One of them was quit and be a whistleblower or just stay and fight it out and keep trying to push those stories through. He also gave me some advice. He said, Document everything that's happened to you as you would cover a news story. Who said what, when, who was president, and the date. I was just reeling from all this because I thought, you know, we, we have betrayed our audience on a massive scale. Massive. And even the CBC acknowledged that erosion of trust in a blog that was written by the editor-in-chief, Brody Fenlon, in March of 2021. 49% of Canadians think journalists are purposely trying to mislead them. About half of the 1,500 people of the Canadians surveyed felt the CBC was more concerned with supporting an ideology or a political position than informing the public, and that the media was not doing well at being objective. How is the CBC going to rebuild trust in journalism? In 2019, it became a member of the Trusted News Initiative. So that brings together news organizations from all over the world and tech platforms to combat coronavirus disinformation, to identify and stop the spread of it, false claims, half-truths, conspiracy theories. Basically a way to filter news through its own filter system. I saw it basically as a mechanism to call people out who disagreed with the narrative and to label them dangerous and extreme. Why do you need a trust filter system if you're consistently telling the truth? Why are tech platforms involved in combating disinformation? And who are these people in this initiative? Are they journalists? Are they scientists? Is artificial intelligence involved? Who is the Trusted News Initiative? This was an effective way to stop the flow of information, to censor one side, skewed reporting, and labeling opposing opinion and thought as disinformation. Sometime after signing on with the Trusted News Initiative, there was a shift in the lens of how we saw news. It was no longer from the bottom up, it was from the top down. Let me give you a specific example of how this played out in the newsroom and another story that I was blocked in doing. I'd gotten a tip about 
a peaceful protest in Winnipeg about vaccine mandates, and it was in September of 2021. There was about 2,000 people out on the street. We didn't cover it because it was decided at the editorial level these people were spreading disinformation. This was just unbelievable. I was stunned because I had been sent in, you know, to cover stories and do live hits from protests with 12 people present. But we were going to ignore a group this large and not send a camera and find out what these people had to say. I thought not only is the size of the group newsworthy, it was the fact that it was both vaccinated and unvaccinated people <clears throat> were walking together and they were united in their opposition to vaccine mandates. I had gotten a call from someone on the protest line who says, where's the CBC? There's people here that are cutting up their vaccine passports as a show of solidarity against the mandates. And I thought, wow, this is a great story. This is great visuals. This is a powerful story of people at the grassroots uniting. Why wasn't the CBC there? It was a decision made at the top level that rather than looking at the news that was unfolding on the ground. When I asked why we weren't there, I didn't get an answer. It wasn't worthy of covering because in the CBC's eyes, these people were disseminating disinformation. How could we say that if we never even spoke to any of them? We ran a few lines of copy that day saying, more than 250 people in Winnipeg held a protest against mandates. That was misleading and it was a half-truth. There was at least 2,000 people. By saying more than 250, we were trying to minimize, in fact, how large it was. And to me, we missed the story entirely, which was people uniting against a cause. Right? Instead, that day, I was assigned a story about a cricket infestation. No one was sent to cover the protest, and the cricket story went national. But there was nothing about the Manitoba protest. So later that month, I pitched another story that was also shut down. And it was about what vaccine mandates were going to look like at um, universities in Manitoba. I had a professor lined up, an immunologist lined up from Ontario. They were on a committee there helping to draft the rollout of mandatory vaccines at the University of Guelph and McGill. They talked about students having less freedom on campus, there'd be more security, more policing of students. Those who refused to wear a mask could be hauled off by campus police. I also had an ethicist lined up who was willing to talk about his concerns over mandatory vaccinations for students. And both the experts were saying they were worried about the mental health of students that were going into a second year of restrictions. Both were getting contacted by parents and students who just were not in support of this. And I thought this would be an excellent discussion to have in Manitoba with faculty and parents and students for our audience to hear because it was already rolling out in Ontario and it, and it was going to be coming into Manitoba. They were ahead of us. And I also said I had spoken with two legal firms uh, that were fighting mandatory vaccines on campuses and they felt the court ruling in Ontario could set a precedent for the rest of the country. There was no response to what I pitched that day. Instead, I was assigned another story about an infestation. This time, it was bedbugs and a local housing complex. 
and no one else had been assigned to that story that I had pitched. So I interpreted that as I was quickly becoming um, silenced and canceled for trying to get the other side of the story out. I was battle-weary. I was exhausted from fighting. I never felt more alone in my profession. And as a veteran journalist who is usually fearless and outspoken, I no longer felt it was safe to pitch stories that I knew that we should be telling. And I quickly felt that my existence there was becoming null and void. But I wasn't done yet. In September, I decided I'm going to go directly to Toronto to voice my concerns about our editorial direction, and I was going to tell them what I was experiencing. I started sending emails to Brody Fenlon, CBC's editor-in-chief, and Paul Hamilton, who was the head of journalistic standards. Now, he's no longer with the CBC. He left a month after I did. I shared with them what I had documented about what was happening with my stories, specific details, what was going on in the newsroom in Winnipeg, the language that was being used, how we had created this culture of hate and division feeding people's fears, and why were we so hostile to people who had an opinion that was different from ours. And while I applauded the CBC's initiative of diversity and inclusiveness in hiring people of different cultures and ethnic backgrounds, I said, where, where is our diversity in thought? Where is that? Again, I was hearing the word anti-vaxxer being used in the newsroom, and this is already a year and a half into the pandemic. We'd failed to create a safe environment for people to speak to us on the record so their voices could be heard. I told them we had violated all our journalistic standards We'd broken the public trust, and we withheld information. The public had a right to know, and we were guilty. I asked to have a conversation with them before I left, and uh, Brody Finlan emailed me back. He said he thanked me for what I sent, said he'd be happy to talk to me, but with the federal election going on, uh, could we schedule a time afterwards in October, and he would invite Paul Hamilton into this discussion as well. I, I, was, I was pleased he was responded. Um, he had responded. At that point, like I knew, I had my end date. I had spoken to HR. I knew when I was going to be leaving the CBC. But I had one more story in the queue I wanted to get out. And it was about a woman who was vaccine injured. I had several calls and conversations with people who had contacted me about they had been vaccine injured, they knew someone who had been vaccine injured, or there was a family member one of them was the mother of a teenage boy who was an elite athlete. He had gotten the shots. He had chest pain. He was told he was going to have to spend his summer lying on a sofa recovering, and he could not do any sports that summer. Uh, a woman called me who got her first shot, and she was really sick, and she was anxious because she went for medical help, and she was told that she should still get the second shot, but maybe she should be admitted to hospital to get the second shot in case she had a worse reaction. This is, to me was madness. It was madness. The rest were afraid that they wouldn't be believed because of you know, the media mantra we were, we were putting there, safe and effective. The way I saw it, we were gaslighting these people. You know, you have, let's say you have, you have a refugee coming into the country and you know they've suffered trauma and they've been through hell. 
How do we treat them? We treat them with mercy and compassion and kindness. And yet these people who were being injured, we were gaslighting them. One man who had an adverse reaction said to me, it had to be him. It's got to be me. There's got to be something wrong with me because it's safe and effective. So getting back to the woman I did the interview with, she had had an adverse reaction after her first shot in May of 2021. It took me weeks to gain her trust for her uh, to go on the record. She was 30 years old. She was an avid runner, and she um, she worked with the federal government. She had no previous heart condition. The very next day after getting the shot, May 27th, she had chest pain. Then she said she was short of breath. She felt like she had this huge weight sitting on her chest. The pain got worse. She had trouble breathing. She described it as the feeling like there was thick smoke in her lungs, but she wasn't a smoker. She knew something was really wrong. She went to emergency at St. Boniface Hospital where she was diagnosed with pericarditis. And that's inflammation of the tissue around the heart. She shared her written medical report with me from the emergency room doctor. Since her shot in May, within the next month, she'd been to emergency five more times with increased chest pain. She could no longer run. She was winded from walking up a flight of stairs, and she said she thought that she was dying. And I had interviewed a cardiologist as well who told me, If there's damage to heart cells as an adult, they don't regenerate. The damage is permanent. And yet we were running stories saying, take a couple of Advil, and there shouldn't be any lasting symptoms from heart inflammation. This woman was on anti-inflammatory medication for months. She was battling depression and anxiety because she was no longer the outgoing, active, happy-go-lucky person she used to be. She also told me how difficult it was to get someone to document what happened to her as an adverse reaction. She said the first doctor who diagnosed it was hesitant to put it in writing. Some doctors didn't know how to fill out the form. Finally, a nurse had filed it for her, and that that was another story I pitched. The problems with doctors reporting adverse reactions in Canada. They have to download a PDF takes about 15 minutes to fill it out. The doctor has to sign it. Then it goes to a health authority who has to approve it. And some of the doctors were telling me that their reports were getting rejected. And I was hearing more and more about the problems with reporting these adverse reactions in Canada. And there was even a period during the pandemic that the line that they used to report these adverse reactions was down. The link wasn't working. Surely this was newsworthy. No interest in that story. But getting back to the woman I interviewed, I stayed in touch with her after doing her own research. She connected with three other women who were diagnosed with heart inflammation after being vaccinated. I wrote her story. Here was my first line based on what she told me. This was the original before it was edited. A 30-year-old Winnipeg woman says she's not confident the COVID-19 vaccine is safe for everybody and is advising people to do their research. She admits she was hesitant at first to get the shot, but she felt pressure from people posting online that she was selfish if she didn't. Two words the editors didn't like in there, vaccine and hesitant. 
Again, several hands were in this story, several. A managing editor, two web writers, another producer, and I fought several edits that were made. But now at this point, I was sort of afraid because I thought if I pushed them too hard, they could pull the story entirely. Okay, here's the story the CBC published on July 12, 2021. This is my story, and this is what they changed. Winnipeg woman shocked by heartlining inflammation after COVID vaccine, but experts say the risk remains low. Look at the first line. A 30-year-old Winnipeg woman says she was shocked to be diagnosed with a condition involving inflammation of the lining around her heart days after she got her COVID-19 vaccination in late May. The changes that they made didn't reflect what she was saying to me about the safety concerns. It was propaganda editing to change the meaning entirely. Any reference to vaccine hesitancy was taken out. I fought the web writer on that first sentence. He says, well, no, we can't say that. We don't want to scare people. I says, that's not journalism. I said, maybe we should be concerned. Look what happened to her. And I said, we can't negate her personal lived experience. Her story is one of caution and to do research. And if you look at the next sentence, which says, but a Winnipeg cardiologist says, despite concerns about heart inflammation, vaccines are preventing illness from COVID-19. Why would anyone read any further in my story? Basically, the message was, it happened to her, it's too bad, it's unfortunate, but vaccines are still doing what they're supposed to be doing. But there were medical experts who were disputing this, but they had been counseled by the CBC because according to the CBC, they were spreading disinformation. The fact she was an avid runner was taken out of the story, and I fought to have that put back in. I says, no, I think that's important. You know, she was a runner, and now she can barely walk up the stairs. It shows what happened before and after the shot. And she never got the second one because her reaction was so severe after the first. And I also didn't think there should be experts or stats negating what she was saying because we'd heard more than enough from all of the experts. It should be just a straight-ahead story about someone who suffered an adverse reaction, and we shouldn't downplay it. Instead, the way I saw it, her story was buried in experts and health officials and stats. It was sanitized. I lost sleep the night before that story was published. I knew we didn't do justice to her story. I spoke with her the next day and she was so traumatized she couldn't read the story. I should also tell you I contacted her five months after I left the CBC and she was still suffering from health problems, blood clots. That story was the breaking point for me. I was waiting for that final exit meeting with Fenlon and uh, Hamilton in October. And when I had it, I, I told them um, what had happened to my stories, how devastated I was to be leaving the CBC after spending three decades in a career that I loved. I asked them, what's the makeup of the CBC Toronto Health Unit? Like, who are these people? Are they journalists? Are they scientists? Like, who are they? I was basically told they were experts who are really good at what they do, but I still don't know who they are. Then I brought up the issue of mandatory training and seminars for journalists that we had to take on what was called conscious and unconscious bias, 
we had to sign off on this training. It was to identify any bias we may have in doing a story and to be aware of it, to make sure it doesn't impact the story that we're doing and that we are more inclusive. I said, you know what? We, the CBC, have a glaring bias, both conscious and unconscious. When it came to stories involving experts opposing the narrative and with those who were unvaccinated, we had a glaring bias. I said I was worried about the next generation of journalists. They're young, they're inexperienced, and that the editorial meeting is not a safe place to have a different opinion. Why are we so mean and hostile to people with different opinions? And I said, did you know how we are being branded outside the walls, the corporate walls of the CBC? I said, I've seen those protests. I've seen those signs. We were being known as the Canadian Brainwashing Corporation or in faith circles, the Christian Bashing Corporation. Some of my final words to them, as I saw it, I said the CBC is morally and ethically culpable of the narrative that it pushed to the public, and we are going to be held accountable. We failed to hold power to account, and no one was holding the media to account. We failed to serve the public. We broke their trust. I told them you can silence and cancel scientists with impeccable credentials. You can even cancel me. But I said, my solace is, is that the truth will come out. It will come out. Brody thanked me, and uh, he said he was sorry that it had ended this way and that he didn't think the CBC had done all that bad. He wished me well. Hamilton, who is the head of journalistic standards, he was still on the screen, and he told me that the most heat that he took during COVID was over ivermectin. People calling and writing with letters with no let up. I said the CBC should have listened on many fronts. The truth will come out. That's what I said in October 2021. So here we are a year and a half later. The truth has come out. Even though people still do not want to believe the truth. According to Health Canada's own website, up into including March 3rd, a total of 427 deaths were reported following vaccination. 427. Each and every one of those deaths was worthy of a story. Where was the CBC? Where was any media on this? And is that number accurate? The same Health Canada website posted more than 10,000 serious injuries for the same time period. Are those numbers accurate? Are they higher because of all the problems with reporting adverse reactions in Canada? Who are the injured? What are their names? What are their stories? What are they suffering? Lawsuits are going on and there's a few people of the vaccine injured who are getting settlements. We have one before the courts right now in Manitoba involving a young man from Steinbach. If reporters were doing their jobs, we would not be here today in this forum funded by citizens telling our stories. Mainstream media would have done it. Where are they? Where are they? On February 27th of this year, papers with hundreds of profiles of suspected COVID vaccine injuries and deaths were plastered onto the doors and windows of CBC Toronto. I had a really hard time looking at those pictures because that to me was proof and evidence that the public had trusted us and they had listened. 
and some of them paid dearly for it. I waited to see, is CBC going to cover this? Is any media going to cover this? How could you ignore this? It was just unconscionable and appalling that nobody covered it. I thought, I wonder how employees felt that day when they came to work and they saw that, those posters on the outside of the building. Did they stop? Did they look? Did they read? Did they look at the names? Or did they just go into the building and carry on with work that day? The same thing happened in Winnipeg on a smaller scale. Again, no media coverage. And as mentioned earlier, CBC decided to pause its Twitter activity after it was labeled government-funded media by Elon Musk. Brody Fenlon had responded by publishing a piece saying, journalistic independence is the cornerstone of who we are as a public broadcaster. Then that tweet was removed. CBC is not impartial. It is not independent. I think what I shared with you gives witness to that. So my heart goes out to those who are uh, starting out or midway in their careers, and for them the challenge is even more daunting. When I was asked to testify, I said, you know, it's dangerous to tell the truth, but I think with someone uh, with the inquiry said to me, it's even more dangerous to not tell the truth. So getting our institutions back, will we get the CBC, our public broadcaster, back? I don't know. But I do know that more journalists need to stand up, speak out, and stand firm as a truth teller. Thank you. On the Global Research News Hour, we've been hearing from whistleblower Marianne Cloak on her reasons for departing Canada's public broadcaster, the CBC, after more than three decades of service to this institution. Anyone who wishes to see the entire account including dialogue with the NCI commissioners, can go to the website nationalcitizensinquiry.ca, click on Hearings, then on Testimony, and then go to the Ottawa video and find her presentation on the second day. You've been hearing from the Global Research News Hour in the summer, paid for by the Centre for Research on Globalization and produced at CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. Music this week was Shifting Sands from Purple Planet Music. It can be found at purple-planet.com. My name is Michael Welch. Join us again next week for more special programming. Mm-hmm.